Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians 3. As you're turning there, I'll tell you, my name is Ross. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Bethel. And um, so I'll say two things struck me in the last 10 minutes. One, so you guys, uh, Chuck Colley was up here and was leading us in prayer and talked to us as a church, reminded us as a church the ministry of prayer of our elders. And I will tell you, I'm a great beneficiary of that. My family, I can't tell you how many times um, Chuck and, and Inez specifically and, the, and many other elders and the elders in general have prayed for us and over us and our family. And, um, and for many of you, I know that you've, you've benefited from that. And it reminds me that you know, the church, we say this all the time, but it really is. It's more than just showing up on Sunday morning and being part of a worship service. It's, it's really being a part of the life of the church and, and benefiting from all the ways God's designed the church. And elders are one of those things. And so I appreciated Chuck's reminder this morning. That is, that is a very vital part of what it means to be a part of a church. And secondly, as Jeff's standing up here, I'm just reminded, one, there's nobody that's better at their job in this world than Jeff Bice is. And he leads our missions across all of our campuses for all of Bethel um, and is an influence um, to lots of other churches. And if you have never gotten to be a part of an experience that Jeff Bice has crafted to move you out of your comfort zone and into somebody else's world, do that. And these virtual mission trips are a really great way to do that. Leslie and I weren't able, we weren't able to be here at the one um, that we had here on this campus a couple of weeks ago, but my daughter, uh, my youngest daughter, Catherine, was there. And she thought it was unbelievable. It was just phenomenal um, day and a half of getting to enter into a different culture and meet some different folks. And so, if you have a chance to do that um, in one of the next virtual mission trips coming up, do that. You'll, uh, you'll be glad that you did, so don't miss out on that opportunity. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the last paragraph of Ephesians chapter 3, and then we're going we're gonna to walk through and we're going to talk about it. It is probably one of the most um, powerful and imaginative uh, passages that we'll ever study together in our life as a church. And so, I want us to hear it, and then I want to walk through and make sure that we don't miss all of the beautiful and powerful things that it says. Paul's praying here. He has been talking about all the things that God has done from eternity past into eternity present, historical present, and looking down the corridors of time. And it brings him to, to his knees. And look at what he says here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning to grasp what we can't grasp on our own, to comprehend what is humanly beyond our capacity to comprehend. Father, to know in, in some ways what, what fully and exhaustively can't be known. Father, to, to be filled beyond what is possible for us to be filled. So I ask that you would do that. Draw us to your Son. Give us clear vision this morning that comes through your Word. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you know, so Paul's praying. He said, let us pray. I, I I'm overwhelmed by all that, uh, the, the thoughts and the ideas and the theology that I've been writing. You know, he began in chapter 1, and he was giving us God's plan that looked back into eternity past and how God um, not only planned but then executed the way in which we would be saved. He then, at the end of chapter 1, gives us a, a glimpse and a display of the power of God, and then God's purpose in salvation, that He would bestow His riches upon us, that we would become the objects of His infinite grace. Take us from those who were dead and make us alive. And not only that, he makes us alive in the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, tells us about this mystery of renewing our relationships and, and, and righting what is wrong between us so that all the hostility that we have by nature with each other, all that could be torn down. And we could experience what it is to love and to be loved. In other words, we can experience what it is we were designed to experience. Well, in chapter 4, what's going to happen is Paul's going to turn a corner. He, he's been talking about all of this high theology. We would call it the orthodoxy of Christianity. 
And then in chapter 4, he's going to turn and he's going to say, okay, all this high theology has got to work itself out in your life. That what you seek to comprehend with your head has to translate into where your feet go and what your hands do. In fact, five times he'll say in chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is the way you're supposed to walk, and then this you're supposed to walk, and this is how you're supposed to walk. And then he moves into the end of chapter 5, and he tells us, wives, this is how you live with your husbands. Husbands, this is how you live with your wives. And children and parents and slaves and masters and, and all of these things, they're the outworking of everything that God is and everything that God has done. In chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, we get into the spiritual war that we are all a part of. Well, this passage this morning, it's the, it's the bridge. You might call it the bridge to the impossible, if you will. There, there's a there's a sense in which Paul has affirmed and, and um, stated, and it's, it's a, it's a uh, so far up to this point in the book, it's three chapters of indicatives, which means there's been no commands given to you. Nothing implored of you, nothing commanded to you. For three chapters, we've basked in the beauty and the majesty and the power of God. Well, all that changes in four. Paul's going to start commanding us, instructing us, imploring us. And yet he cannot do that without praying for God to do something in us first. See, one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is that we skip over the reality of this prayer at the end of chapter 3, and we try to live out chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 in our own strength, by our own instincts, in our own resources. What I'm saying to you is that chapter 4 of Ephesians and chapter 5 of Ephesians and chapter 6 of Ephesians is absolutely, utterly hopelessly impossible for you without God answering the prayer at the end of chapter 3. That's why Paul, he falls to his knees for, for this reason. That's the reason. I fall to my knees, I, I bow to my knees in catching a glimpse of all that God has been doing from eternity past, now thinking about how we live that out in the here and now. I have no other option but to fall to my knees in utter humility and ask that God would do what only God can do. It's a response of humility. Listen, if you don't go into the Christian life, you don't, you don't go into chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. You don't, you don't go into how are you going to live with the people in your life? How are you going to live in your marriage? How are you going to uh, parent your children? How are you going to honor your parents? If you don't go into that with knees bowed in a posture of humility, 
you'll never survive. It's crushing to you. This is what Paul's saying. And he highlights in verse 15, he highlights this, what he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's the fatherhood of God that he's highlighting. That word family is, is fatherhood it, it, in our text. And it aims at, at God who is a father, the, the creator, the, the father of all that he has created. In, in, in fact, I, I'll tell you, in, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus, after he's just instructed his di- disciples on how to pray, he talks about God as Father. I mean, he's wanting to highlight the fact God is a Father, and you know about fatherhood because God's the one who designed fatherhood so you could know about Him experientially. It's where Jesus says, what, you know, what father wouldn't give good gifts to his children? What father, when a, the, his child asked for a fish, would give him a serpent or an egg, would, would give him a scorpion? And if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The benevolence of God as Father. In this prayer, as we look at these impossible things that we're praying for, know that we are going to a Heavenly Father. This is the reality in my life I was thinking about it this week. My children's deepest needs elicit, elicit benevolent urgency from their father. Their deepest needs elicit this benevolent urgency on my part. A couple of years ago, we were up here on a Wednesday night. It was to Discover Bethel and got a phone call. My daughter in Lubbock had, had, had been in a wreck. And, and listen, I'm there. I'm you know, Discover Bethel, welcoming new people. You know, this, this is my calling in life. There's no great, I love Discover Bethel as much as I love anything around here. And I'm telling you without one thought. Picked up my bags, got my keys, walked to the parking lot, got in the car, and drove to Lubbock, Texas. And it was three days till I gave a thought to anybody who was in Discover Bethel. My children's greatest needs elicit this benevolent, gracious urgency. And that's the way God is. I mean, our needs, our deepest needs... There is a benevolence and grace poured out here. So we know about fatherhood because we know about what it is to to be a father or have a father. And God's greater than that. He's a greater father than all of that. Well, real quickly, the the, um, beginning of verse 16, it says that according to the riches of His glory... Not, not out of, his, of the riches, not out of his wealth, but according to his wealth. According to his glory. The sum total of all his attributes. 
It helps us to think about what we can pray for, right? If, if Paul's praying, and he's praying that God will answer as a father, as a, as a father whose benevolence and grace far exceeds anything that we have ever experienced or could imagine, how then do we pray? Well, we pray to God out of or according to, according to the riches of his glory, we're not asking, like Mark Kirkendall said, we're not, we're not asking a, a billionaire for a few dimes. That would be out of his riches. We're, we're asking according to, according to all he has and all that he is. And what we pray for begins with who are we praying too. We limit our prayers all the time. We have a view of a God who is limited, but what Paul is going to show us, God is limitless. And if God's limitless, our prayers can be limitless. We put boundaries on our prayers where there's no boundaries. We literally are called to outpray our imagination. That's what Paul is going to say. And Paul's going to pray for four things, really. And prays for one, and then the next three flow out of them. Look at the rest of verse 16. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Here's what he's saying. That the uttermost power of God would show up in our innermost being. Praise that we'd be strengthened with power. Two words for power there. And it's this passive idea. God's the one that gives the power. It's not. He's, Paul's praying, going to get up from his knees, get up from the prayer, dust himself off, and live out a when going gets tough, the tough get going kind of deal. This isn't a plea for self-discipline or a power of positive thinking. It is not pulling himself up by his bootstraps or asking us to. It's not self-talk or getting a grip on yourself or turning over a new leaf. It is the fundamental work of God from his spirit to our spirit. It is a power that flows out of the unlimited resources of God's majestic might. Paul prays that our inner being would be strengthened. We'd experience this inner, this core, this divine strength of God that would enable us to live as the new creations we've become in the midst of a world that is in rebellion against God. Well, the, the inner being. So think about it this way. It's a, it's a power from God, Paul's praying, that, that strengthens us in the, in the depths of who we are. And then that strength, that power would be drawn to the surface of our life that what God is doing in our inner being 
that Paul piles power words and glory words and riches, that 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 he's doing would be drawn to the surface of our life. The innermost core of our life would be the energy that fuels our new creation. In John 6.63, Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Paul has to remind the Galatians of this. So why are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you're now trying to be perfected by the flesh? There is something we need that we do not have. Paul is praying for that. That the power of God would be unleashed, would come to bear at the inner core of our life. That would be the energy that fuels the new creation, and it would be drawn to the surface. There's a guy named Roy, uh, Robert Boyd Munger, and was a pastor at First Presbyterian in, in Berkeley, California. And in 1947, he preached a sermon, and the, the title of the sermon was My Heart, Christ's Home. It came from this passage where, where God would do these things, strengthen the power of His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. My Heart, Christ's Home. That was the sermon. Well, later, a few years later, he would end up, that would be turned into a book and sell 10 million copies by the same name. But he begins the sermon this way, and the sermon actually is an allegory, if you will. Something like Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. But he begins this way. He says, without question, one of the most remarkable Christian doctrines is that Jesus Christ himself, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, will actually enter a heart, settle down, and be at home there. Jesus came into the darkness of my heart, turned on the light, built a fire on the hearth, and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness, and he filled emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. Well, as Munger allegorizes it, he says, you know, giving Jesus a tour of his home, his heart. They visited the library of his mind, which he described as a very small room with very thick walls. Peered into the dining room of his appetites and desires. Spent a little time in the workshop where his talents and skills were kept. Even poked their heads into the hall closet. Filled with the dead, rotten things that had managed to pile up. And then his description of what he calls the drawing room. He enters the room with Jesus, describes what it looks like, and he hears Jesus say, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It's secluded and quiet, and we can have fellowship together. Well, he writes about what, what a sweet and precious thing that was, this intimacy with Jesus. 
But he got older and life got busier. Less time spent communing with the guest of his heart house. And he talks about in this one hurried morning, he's heading out the door, and uh, he glances in the drawing room, and he finds Jesus sitting by the fireplace. He says, have you, have you been there all along? And Jesus says, I've never missed our appointed time. So the man's convicted, you know, wonders what, what had changed, what had caused him to neglect what was so vital in the response in the allegory from Jesus is this. The trouble with you is this. You've been thinking of the quiet time of, of the Bible study and prayer time as a, as a factor in your own spiritual progress. But you've forgotten this hour means something to me also. Your heart is my home. The story ends, a man drops to his knees and gives the legal title of his heart, his home, to Jesus. No more the guest, Jesus, the master of the house, to be fully at home. This is what Paul is praying for these believers. I'm praying that God would grant you to be strengthened in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That the uttermost power of God would strengthen your innermost being resulting in Christ dwelling at home in your heart. And he's going to say with a purpose, with the purpose of comprehending the love of Christ and being filled with the fullness of God. You know, until you're at home, until Christ is at home in your inner man, you're a dual citizen. If you're a believer, you positionally, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but experientially you live like an old, you know, like the old man. Paul's praying, listen, I, I pray you'd comprehend beyond what is your individual capacity to comprehend, to know what is beyond your intellectual grasp, to be filled beyond what, what could ever be measured. At the end of 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. It's not a command. It's a, fa it's a statement of fact. This is who you are. You're rooted. You're grounded in love. And then verse 18, may have strength. It's the only time that word strength there in the Greek is used. It means to, to have a capacity beyond what is natural, beyond what you could have or gain on your own, that you would have the strength to comprehend, to seize, to take hold with all the saints. What is the breadth, length, and height, and depth? 
I want you to comprehend what's utterly immeasurable. I want you to grasp hold of that which cannot be grasped. One of the things he says is we've got to do that together. It's beyond any of our individual capacities that we would, we would comprehend with all the saints. This comprehend, we need a combined capacity. Does we become enlightened? We, we grow in Christ in community. We're transformed in the context of community. Christianity is not a solitary pilgrimage. We grow together. To comprehend what Paul prays we comprehend, we need each other to do it. I think it's fascinating the measurements that he gives, breadth, length, height, depth. It's a way probably speaking of something infinite, of infinite proportion, infinite dimension, a scope that can't fully be measured, a scale that can't be fully divined, something so majestically massive that you could set off in any direction, walk for eternity, never get to the end of it. It's bottomless, boundless, measureless, fathomless. So the question is, what's he measuring here? What is it that's to be measured? Well, the church has come up with two options, and, and some say, if you look at the greater context, what he's talking about is this plan, this mystery, this um, m- majestic work of God, this sovereign work of God by which he will display his manifold wisdom. Now, we could comprehend it. I think most people say, really, what we're talking about is God's love. Verse 18, what's being measured is the love of verse 17, the love in verse 19. That Christ's love is vast, it's beyond our apprehension. There's no place you can go away from that. Um, You can go far enough away that Christ's love is not there. There's no distance or depth or height. No place can you find that you can escape the love of Christ in your life. Not sin, not depression, not suffering, not tragedy, not joy, not blessing. If you're lonely, you're not separated from Christ's love. If you feel like you're drowning in your life, you are not separated from Christ's love. That's why Paul's praying like this. For for us to comprehend what we don't have the capacity to fully grasp, to, to know the love of Christ, a love that surpasses knowledge, we can know truly even if we never know exhaustively. To catch the glimpse, to take hold of how much God loves them. 
and is not something that can be reasoned with human logic. It's not equated as we've learned to equate things. It's unconditional. It's enormous. It's beyond logic and beyond our ability to reason. And it's just piling up words here because language fails. And I think that's part of the point Paul is making. I'm praying that God would do what is impossible in your life. Verse 19, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a poetic way to turn that phrase. That all of His attributes would permeate all of your life. The, the fullness, the, the filling one way to imagine it is Paul you know, would imagine a giant pitcher, bucket, full of water, full to the top. And you're a small glass, you're even a shot glass, that you're tiny glass, that you would experience in your tiny glass holding all the water of the pitcher. All his attributes in all of your life. And Paul's desires that the inner work of God would draw to the surface, would be drawn to the surface in your life. That what is seen in your life would more and more align with what is unseen. That the power of God would be drawn from the depths of our being to the surface of our everyday life so that more and more and more and more we experience who we truly are in Christ. I think there's three conduits that, through which we were able to draw the strength of God in our lives. Now, if it's three, I might argue that there's a fourth. But the first of those is God's Word. So you cannot know about God's power in your life apart from God's Word. You can't know the God behind God's power apart from God's Word in your life. George Mueller, in his biography, I saw more clearly than ever for the first, that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify Him, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And what is the food for the inner man? None other than the Word of God. Is the Word of God as you read it that, that draws to the surface of your life this powerful work of God in your inner being? Well, the second conduit, the, the second resource we've been given that, that draws this power, this, this work of God from our inner life to the surface is God's 
Spirit. The very Spirit of God who indwells us, inhabits us as as a body, knits us together. And we miss the work of the Spirit when we forsake gathering with one another. Which leads me to the third of the resources. I totally understand God's Word, and you've heard me say in Discover Bethel, I totally understand God's Spirit. It's the third resource is the one I always have the most trouble with. If I were picking, I would have picked angels. You know, because they're awesome. And they'd be good for business, right? Come to Christ, get an angel. That's an easy sell. But it's actually not. Angels. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, we're given the people of God. And I want you to think about how powerful this is. The people of God. When I speak about the people of God, I'm talking about people who, in their inner being, God is bringing to bear all of His power out of the riches of His glory in this work of transforming them into the likeness of His Son. And that we, as we come together, there is this thing going on in each of us that as we come together, we're helping draw to the surface. I can't, I actually, I can't do what Paul's going to command me to do, even if I want to do it. In Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 6, without you, without my life rubbing up next to your life, and in that, it drawing to the surface what God's doing at the depths of my inner being and the depths of your inner being. That it's only then do we find ourselves walking in those things that if we were to stop and assess, say this is truly impossible for me to be walking in this. The fourth conduit is, I think, worthy of mention, although we'll talk about it in the days to come, but that's suffering. Paul will pray in Philippians 1.29, it has been graciously granted to me not only to believe, but to suffer something holy and sacred about suffering. And as it, as it draws to the surface of our life, what God's doing in our innermost being. Well, I'll close the way Paul closed. Now to him. Who is able? See, I think we, we're supposed to read and get to verse 19 and, and be shouting at the top of our lungs. That's great, Paul. How? You prayed for things that are impossible. And so he says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. It's three words. He's piling on adjectives exceedingly. Abundantly, more, far more than all we could ask or think 
Your translation may say, imagine. It's a great translation. According, not to our resolve, not to how good we are, or how hard we try, according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's one of the most comforting scriptures. God isn't just a little bit smarter than us. He's not just one step ahead of us. It's more than Him seeing the forest where we only see the trees. God's immeasurable beyond our imagination, and that's how He works. He works in immeasurable ways and beyond what we can possibly imagine. Paul ends there in verse 21 and says, to the glory, uh, to him be glory in the church, real quick, and we'll close here. Glory is, when you speak of glory, you speak of someone's renown or their reputation or the, the radiance that emanates. In the Bible, you see when folks encounter the glory of God, like in Isaiah 6, they're undone, they worship, they fall to their knees. To glorify, for Him to be glorified, for the church, for Him to be glory in the church, that means to make famous, to bring His renown to the open, to make His name big. Oftentimes, it means to make clear, contrary to expectation, to change an errant opinion. For God to be glorified in the church, it is for us to live in such a way that as people would look upon us, as, as we reflect the glory of God, their mind would change about who God is. That what they think previously would be transformed. That's who we are. It's what we're for. And ultimately, we will be glorified, transformed, when we're face to face with Jesus. He ends the prayer, amen. May it be so. May it be so. I, I want to plead with you. If the Christian life for you, if, if, if someone were to prick you and you were to bleed, this is what the Christian life is. And if the Christian life for you is all the things that you're supposed to do or not supposed to do, how you look on the outside and play well with others, if that's Christianity to you, I pray this morning you, you could repent of that, you could um, let that go, you could drop that in the trash on the way out. Paul prays, listen, this is what, listen that's, that may be what it looks like, that's not what it is. What it is... Is God doing a work beyond anything we could comprehend, measure, or imagine in the very depths of our being? And through His Word and by His Spirit, 
and in the context of one another, that is drawn to the surface of our life so that we are the reflection of His glory. Amen? So, so be it. That's what we pray. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's go to the Lord. Father, we, we pray with Paul this morning that what you are doing, that we'd experience that. That what is taking place in the, in the innermost part of us the place of spirit or, or soul or the, the depths. Father, things that can't be measured or even fully imagined, but, but Father, would you, would you in us as a church and as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ draw that to the surface of our life? so that your, your name's made big. You are glorified. And Father, we begin to live who we are in your Son. And we confess this morning that is our only hope. Our only hope is what you are doing in us. Father, help us to lean into that so that it comes to the surface of our life and our relationships. And more and more we look like your Son, Jesus. It is in His name that we pray and by the power of your Spirit.